0: Alive. Is it going to be
1: all right? Hello, and welcome to All Through a Lens.
0: This is the podcast about film photography, where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya and I'm Eric. On this week's spookiest show we're talking about x-ray film and x-rays in general really. What are they? How'd that all happen? And what's with x-ray film?
1: We'll talk about cameras stealing souls and also talk to Montana photographer Leland Buck. But before we get to any of that how about we
0: ask the trivia question? All right. Okay so each episode we have a trivia question that we answer at the end of the episode. So you know just put your thinking caps on for this one for the next hour or so. So this one is... Someone was raised in the 80s. <sighs> yeah, you were too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry. So
0: okay, go ahead. We'll be talking quite a bit about x-rays and x-ray film, like we said. So today, images produced by x-rays are called radiographs. It makes sense. Radiation, taking photographs, radiographs. But by which name were they known upon their discovery and invention? What were they called when they first came out?
1: Ooh, Ooh, we'll
0: have that answer for you at the end of the show. (laughs) So excited.
1: (laughs) Also, you win nothing, but it's fun. (laughs) Okay, it's time to check the answering machine. And for the question we asked listeners this week was, which emulsion would you bring back from the dead? (laughs) All right. Okay, let's push the button. Hello,
2: (laughs) no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, Eric and Vanya. It's Julian. The film that I would like to to, to have brought back from the dead is Eastman Kodak 5285, 35mm color reversal film. The most beautiful film stock I have ever used.
1: Ooh.
0: Yeah, I did some looking around. Um, I have a link here in our show notes if you want to look at that, Vanya.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the, um, the small little wildflower yeah, pictures. Yeah.
0: It is, it's really nice color. It's very realistic, like, like slide film would be and probably should be. And I believe this was used as a motion picture emulsion. I think it came out in 1999 ish and it went away in 2012. So I don't know what replaced it, if anything. I mean, 2012 is that isn't that when they kind of axed all of the ectochrome somewhere around there so maybe it was the last bit of that Mm-hmm. yes yeah, very beautiful film hello
2: everyone this is anthony ru i am kino underscore pravda on instagram and i was going to say that my top choice for the film of the dead to be resurrected would be eastman 5220 xt which was a short-lived daylight version of of Panatomic X, a little bit lower speed. Beautiful film, but actually going back, I would really prefer to see Agfa HDC 100, which was one of the most saturated, beautiful color films I've ever shot. And unlike other color films of the period of the 80s and 90s, uh, the negatives have been incredibly stable, still produce beautiful uh, scans, And it's just a film that doesn't get mentioned much, but was uh, a real sleeper, a beautiful color film that, that really deserves to come back. Thank you. Bye. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, I shot with, with the first emulsion that he mentioned, the black and white emulsion, and um, I didn't really have like a strong opinion about it one way or the other, but I did, I did like the pictures I produced with it. I don't know if I could find, or maybe just didn't look hard enough, for the Agfa HDC 100, but look, any Agfa color film from that era is amazing.
1: I would definitely take his recommendations, especially with black and white, his... I don't know if you guys follow him on Instagram. His Instagram is... Kino Pravda. When I go to do the, like, hashtag stories, I'm like, I want to pick more of him, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I only have, I have to share, so right? Everybody <laughs> should
0: be following him. And if you follow us for any amount of time, you've definitely seen his work. So, yeah. yes, check him out. He's, he's a, a great follow.
1: Someone's probably going to mention infrared film. So I'll go with high-speed color film. Whatever happened to that Fuji 1600 natura i think or something why is it so expensive were
0: there only three rolls left in the world <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what i thought i had last week <laughs> yeah you did not um
0: uh, but you, you might have some vanya
1: yeah maybe I, I feel like i should probably just mention what happened Please mention um what happened. i shot with some fuji 1600 uh last weekend uh-huh. and the whole time like I knew that it was black and white, but the whole time I was shooting it, like I pulled it out really fast, like okay, I'm going to shoot this, blah, blah, blah. and I put it in my camera. And Fuji has a green label, so in my mind, I was like shooting color. So when I was actually taking the pictures, I was, I was taking pictures in color. I wasn't taking pictures in black and white, yeah. which is there is a difference. We've talked about this for for some reason. That's how my brain works. Um, and then when it when I came home, I pulled it out. And I didn't read it. I still thought it was color. (laughs) (laughs) I developed it, boiled that shit in C41, and pulled out the negatives. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Why are these gray? (laughs) Why are there no negatives? And yeah, it was black and white the whole time. Yeah. I did pull negatives out, and I'm sure I'll talk about it eventually at some point. But yeah, that was... uh,
0: yeah, I think we're actually, I think we scheduled that talk for next episode. <laughs> okay, so
1: I'll shut up now. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Okay,
0: Hey guys, this is uh, Freddy from Italy. Uh, if I have to bring back a film from the dead, that will be Fuji Superior 200. I love, I love this film. It's, you know, it's the best conf- It was probably the best consumer film out there because, you know, C200 doesn't have the fourth layer of colors and this had all four. All the colors are just amazing. Uh, I have probably 30 rolls of Superior 200 in my freezer and I love it and I keep it there as if it was gold. Um... I don't know what else all, the whole superior line. So even 100, 800, 400, uh 1600. I uh, I want to I never tried 1600. Would love to try 600 film. Have you shot any of the superior? I think you might have a very strong
1: opinion about this. You know, I okay, I feel like I have <laughs> obviously I have some issues with Fuji because every time I shoot with Fuji, I usually stick it in one of like my cheaper water cameras. And I've been getting leaks in them and salt water's getting getting on them. So I've been having like a lot of souping issues. And the last like three or four rolls, I've had like super crazy color shifts. And I know that's like kind of cool and people like that, but I wasn't really expecting that. So I'm not the person to ask, but Obviously, he's gotten really good results with Fuji 200. And that's a lot of fun because it's not like some, it, well, it's not around, but even if like they brought that back, it's not like a crazy expensive film. No. It's better to like a film that is budget friendly than to like something that's like extremely expensive. Yeah, it's a good film.
0: Although Superior Line, he's right. It's an it, it's an amazing line. I've shot a bit of it. Uh, and the pictures that I've brought up here, the colors are really really wonderful
1: i noticed he didn't share any of mine (laughs) hello eric and vanya this is cliff
2: in oklahoma city bulldog 1875 episode 27 awesome and three reasons i would like to see kodachrome brought back first gary winograd did it when it wasn't cool second i watched lots of documentaries and uh movies about film to include uh the movie with ed harris kodachrome and third i have my dad's Canonet camera and a big Kodak metallic tray of the slide film pictures that he shot from back in that day. So it's really special to
0: me. Thanks, guys.
1: That's so awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that he has kept all his uh, father's pictures. I'm sure they're amazing. I would love to see those slides. Yeah,
0: they don't. They don't. They just don't age. Kodachrome is kind of eternal in a lot of ways, which is one of the reasons why it'll never come back. <laughs> the chemicals needed to develop it are not good. (laughs) And I just don't Mm. think that there's ever, I don't think there's ever a possibility of Kodachrome coming back. (sighs) If I had to pick one film that will absolutely never come back, it's Kodachrome.
1: We have like a mountain range named after it. I'm, I'm assuming we would find some other alternative chemical to develop.
0: I mean, you could make a new line and call it Kodachrome.
1: But it wouldn't be the same. Someday mm-hmm.
0: I would like to really dig in chemically, uh, like in the process, and like like really chemically, and try to make it somewhat interesting, and do a little segment on Kodachrome and why it's never coming back. <laughs> it's. Um,
1: <laughs> I think that's good. This it, is actually how we just like start talking about random things, and then we come up with segments. Yeah,
0: I mean, eventually we will. I mean, we did that with with um, Ektachrome last week, and yep. the story of Kodachrome <laughs> is actually it's it is a little m- more interesting than you think. So, which doesn't mean it's actually interesting. It's just more interesting than you might think it is. (laughs) Hello, guys. This is Mike Gutterman from the Negative Positives podcast. And the film that I'd like to see come from the back from the grave, back from the dead, is Kodak Plus X. Kodak Plus X. It was a beautiful film. Uh, A little bit slower Tri-X, a little finer grain, but that classic look. Bring back Plus
1: X. Excellent choice. I think so. I think I have some of that stuff still left over. I would hope so. I gave you 100 feet of it. (laughs) Oh my god, wait. You did just give me 100 feet of it.
0: (laughs) Yes, I would hope you had some left. I don't think you even... I think I
1: have a little bit. (laughs) I've
0: shot Plus X quite a bit, and I I guess I like it. It never really... (sighs) Well, that's not true. I did shoot some stuff last year that I did really like or two years ago. And I shot some some medium format of it this past weekend. I'm excited about developing it, but it's not a favorite film of mine.
1: So you think I would have an answer for this since Eric and I came up with the question for you to answer? (laughs) Maybe I do? Eh. I think Um, yeah. I guess I'll start with I've been quite happy with the film we have available, and there are some strange expired films I adore, like Kodak 2253 or the Kodak 2475 recording film. But the color shifts of the 2253 and the huge chunky green of 2475 are due to age. So if they were to be brought back, (laughs) they would be fresh and not look the same. (laughs) But I mean, a lot of people have shot it. And that, I think, is the issue here. When it it comes down to it, it's my age. So even though I am pushing, you know, the 40s almost, (laughs) I haven't experienced... Film. I haven't like experienced film photography of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So I guess that being said, I would probably say Kodachrome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'd like to do a segment about Kodachrome where we go into the process and the chemicals used <laughs> and all that and explain why it's never coming back. <laughs>
1: I know. But I mean, this is just, I mean, just because we say we wanted to come back doesn't mean it's going to. But So that's why yes. I'm going to say that one. Perfect. I would love to see Kodachrome come back. I'm- well, thank you for shooting everybody's dreams down, Eric. All right. So you answer the question.
0: Yes, <laughs> that's what I do now. So <sighs> I'm i am a little torn here. Um, I shoot almost exclusively expired film. Well, I guess not as much lately as I used to, but I have been shooting almost exclusively expired film, and I've found myself very much in love with Verichrome, but I don't know if it's because I actually like it, or because this 70-year-old film somehow still works, and that's pretty cool. And the same goes for this Ansco Triple S film that I've been recently shooting, and actually finished shooting. You know, I, I, I think it's really fun to be able to shoot really super old film. But really, I think we need some Agfa sheet film something really slow um i've been shooting Agfa Pan 50 lately and i'm really loving it it's a just a beautiful emulsion and yeah it's a little old but i don't think the age is affecting it very much which is kind of cool there's definitely no aging effects that i'm seeing in the emulsion and i'm a a contrasty guy i like contrast but i really enjoy like a a really strong midsection as well and agfa sheet (laughs) film do it god damn (coughs) bonia Not saying anything. So I just love me some <laughs> slow ass sheet film, and I think we need more of it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're kicking around spooky ideas for a spooky Halloween episode. So what we came up with was an idea that some cultures are afraid of having their picture taken because supposedly they believe the camera will steal their soul.
0: Yeah. So I grew up around the Amish and I knew that they really didn't like having their photos taken. And so not having really talked to any of them about it, I just sort of assumed that it was because they believed the camera was a soul stealer. I, I was incorrect. <laughs>
1: Those among the Amish who refuse to have their photo taken are usually of the belief that photos are graven images, strictly forbidden in the Bible. It seems like so many stories told by photographers of their times among the Native Americans or indigenous Africans are capped off with the subjects refusing to be photographed. The reason which most of us accepted as fact was that these strange and superstitious people actually believed that the camera could steal their soul.
0: So this got me wondering. If I was putting this belief upon the Amish, could we as Westerners have been putting the same belief onto other cultures? Coincidentally, the cultures we were
1: colonizing and killing. Looking at it rationally, the Western Judeo-Christian concept of the soul is fairly unique to the West. Native Americans, for example, had an array of concepts that could often be seen as the soul, but were not the same as the biblical concept. This was also true with African and Asian cultures.
0: So in order for these colonized cultures to believe that the camera was stealing their soul, they'd first have to be converted to Christianity, but only to the point where they'd be afraid of losing their soul, which is a concept largely foreign to Christianity.
1: And all after 1850, when cameras began accompanying explorers and missionaries to far-off lands where likenesses could be made and brought back of these new and strange peoples. With this rationale in mind, we dug into the idea to see what we could find
0: and came up with absolutely nothing. While there are oodles and oodles of stories written by dead white people of savages fearing their souls were being stolen, we could find no accounts by actual indigenous peoples who
1: actually feared this. One example that stood out was the fact that Lakota war leader Crazy Horse refused to have his photo taken. Many at the time, and even now, attribute this to his fear that the camera would steal his soul. But Crazy Horse wasn't a foolish man.
0: He had seen many of his friends and loved ones have their photo taken with no ill or adverse effects. What reason would he have, then, to believe that the camera could steal his soul?
1: Wasn't it more likely that he didn't trust the intentions of the white settlers killing his people and destroying his land? Story after story often leads us to this conclusion. The indigenous, or other, person
0: refused to have their photo taken. They gave no reason, and so a reason was thrust upon them by the white photographer. That reason was almost always that the native person was afraid of having their soul stolen.
1: There are some cases, however, when it comes close... In cultures who believed in sympathetic magic, the idea that possessing a piece of a person, usually nail clippings or hair, could give the owner some kind of control over the person in question. These beliefs were not usually limited
0: to the camera, but to drawings and dolls made to look like the person. And again, nobody seemed to be afraid that their soul was going to be stolen, only that some ill will might befall them.
1: And that's as close as we got to any believable account of a culture thinking that a camera could steal a soul. Even some African cultures where people did believe their shadows could be stolen, their concept of the soul differed widely from the Western concept. Even then, there didn't seem to be a belief that a camera or any technology could steal it. So much of our information
0: comes from the essay, A Photograph Steals the Soul, The History of an Idea by Z. S. Strother. And if you look around the internet hard enough, You'll definitely be able to come across this and find it. This paper was the basis for our conclusion and the evidence we needed to affirm our original suspicion that indigenous cultures didn't actually believe that having their picture taken would steal their souls.
1: While proving a negative is basically impossible, the complete lack of evidence seems telling. And while some examples wander near the idea that cameras are soul stealers, a closer look shows that in every case the truth is more complicated and nuanced than we in the West might want it to be.
0: For the most part, it seems that indigenous cultures were impressed with photography, but did not fear it. Those who felt some trepidation seemed to mostly distrust the photographer, or more than likely, those who came before the photographer who did them harm.
1: The damage done by this belief comes from there being no ability or even desire for the photographer to communicate or understand the subject. Rather than attempt an understanding the photographers speak for their subject, inserting their own prejudices and beliefs into the minds and thoughts of those they captured. This is another form of colonialism.
0: It may not be as destructive and horrific as torching villages and committing genocide, but it nevertheless reduces people to objects and invents a belief system via some misguided fanfiction.
1: The history of photography is more than simply a collection of old photos and archives and preserved cameras in museums. It didn't just document the history of our triumphs. It documented Some of the darkest moments in our past.
0: So, for this episode, we're giving a call to Leland Buck. He is a photographer from Montana who has recently, maybe not so recently, but has been using x ray film extensively of late. We're really big fans of his work, really kind of a just an all around nice guy, great photographer. Uh, we're going to talk to him a bit about his work in general but we're gonna be focusing in on x-ray film and how he uses it and maybe why we should use it as well
1: all right let's give Leland a call
2: howdy howdy
0: hello
1: hey how are you great good
0: (laughs) all right Look you guys! You've
2: got—I feel terrible. I don't have big microphones and stuff. I have a little—a little. Can power- you hear me okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm traveling, so I'm just using a.
1: Okay, of course. So, how have you been good?
2: Good. <laughs> made it through. Made it through another uh, summer. Made it through what appears to be nine months of pandemic. I'm doing good.
1: Yeah, I—I I did notice that your photos are kind of from everywhere. So let's kind of start with that. And um, where are you from? And how often do you travel?
2: Uh, Well, I live in Missoula, Montana. Uh, I'm originally from Colorado. I went to the University of Montana back in the 80s. My wife is from Montana, so we left and lived in Southern California, a bunch of places, but eventually ended up back in Montana. And it's a great place, but it's a great place to come home to. I have a zine that I put out earlier this year that was from part of a trip in France two years ago. I do I do travel a lot and been a big part of my interest in photography is to travel, not necessarily to photograph all the time, but to give myself opportunities to kind of explore and using the camera is really about that for me. So they just fit well together.
1: <laughs> I do remember reviewing your Paris syndrome and uh zine it's amazing if any do you guys do you still have any copies i do okay awesome
0: uh do you are you planning another one i'm always planning
2: (laughs) i'm working on on a project that i just want i just want it to be a zine but i've got a friend who is a book designer and a calligrapher and um, but it's it's all about trees so oh we'll just, cool and who knows when that'll be done because <laughs> I've got like 10 other things that I'm doing too but um, some of these some of your ideas ha- if you kind of conceive of them as a project whether it's a book, a zine, it just kind of gives you a reason to pull over every once in a while and take a picture of something when you see it you think oh that would be a good one for to go with that and yeah I kind of need that sometimes because you get kind of comfortable sitting you know it's like you don't want to pause the audiobook and find the soft shoulder to pull your car <laughs> over on unless you have a reason to so
1: so the next question is uh you shoot I've noticed in your feed and a lot of your pictures on Flickr, you shoot a lot of black and white any particular reason you favor that over color
2: That's a, that's a tough question. I, you know, I, I do favor it. I, I mean, I will certainly admit to that. I tend to see things more that way. I don't know why. So, I was shooting a lot of tech pan and, you know, these kind of simple, easy starter films that you could get then and developing them myself. And I just never felt like there was, you know, that there was something I couldn't do with those films. And I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and I do a lot of printing with black and white. I got into digital kind of heavily in the early 2000s and um, I still shoot a D, D850. And, um, you know, I, carry digital cameras around quite a bit. I just returned to this idea that the process of shooting film slowed me down in a way that made my work more meaningful in the final result. And I love the process. I love everything about it.
0: <laughs> so uh what is your favorite black and white emulsion? Do you have one?
2: You know I shoot a lot of FP4 mm-hmm especially lately. And, and I, you know, the, the ideal black and white uh, negative for me is FP four in Pyrocat. cat. It, it just, you know, there's something about those negatives. They're just beautiful. Yeah. Um, that said my, I shoot a lot of in four by five and eight by 10, I shoot a lot of HP five, a lot of FP four,
0: yeah,
2: a little Delta. I shoot quite a bit of the Pancro 400, the Berger.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, People, I guess, call it burger. Burger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what I call it. (laughs) You do. And and then, you know, and then I shoot a lot. Lately, I've been shooting a ton of X ray films.
0: Yes. Yes. And we are going to, I guess, we can just hop into it now.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about X ray. Okay.
0: So we'll be getting into the history of it and all of that in the second half of the show. But for now, you told me on Instagram that. X-ray film has completely reinvigorated your photography and that you wouldn't dream of setting out to take photos without it. Really? Has it, has it yeah. done that? <laughs> yeah, totally.
2: It's completely ridiculous for anybody <laughs> to say that. But um, more and more, the way that I like to shoot is I'll set out for a day with at most five by 5 holders, so 10 sheets of film loaded, mm-hmm. I always have more in a and in a changing bag if I need it, but um and if I'm shooting eight by ten i I carry four in fact, I only own four film holders for my eight by ten so I like to go slow I like to force myself to go slow and I don't shoot two frames of anything, which means I screw things up you know yeah. I screw <laughs> things up sometimes um, as you're supposed to right yeah and I actually love it when i when I fuck things up because it just makes it <laughs> Some of the fuck-ups are like the coolest things, too. Like <laughs> um But so, so with X-Ray, I describe it as there are technical, there are economic, and there are definitely aesthetic reasons to shoot these kind of weird emulsions. Yeah. The basic structure of most X-Ray films is that it has a base with a very thin uh, silver emulsion on two sides on both sides it is designed to pick up x-rays or gamma rays so it has to be very thin to be sensitive to those Mm -hmm. and it also has to be easy to process quickly so they made it on both sides so you could develop it faster
0: oh Um, yeah okay
2: what i've found is um because you have the the silver on both sides of the negatives if you're developing it in a photo Developer, like I usually use Rodinal 1 to 100, you get incredibly rich blacks. Yeah. You get great density. Yeah. And it's also a fairly compressed image in terms of highlights. So you kind of blow out pretty much a lot earlier than you would with a, a better film. So, yes. <laughs> and what I found is like it responds very differently in a lot of different, different environments. So when I was just down in California, I was, you know, I found a, a day that was, it wasn't cloudy. I wish it was cloudy. It was smoky. It was like insanely smoky and I'm in Sacramento and I found an old cemetery and I went and I was in the shade from a tree and I took some photographs and the clarity is incredible. Uh, you know, you get this really nice, clear, hardly any grain at all. And then I took a couple of photographs on my way back from that trip um right on the oregon uh nevada border just north of a little town called mcdermott yes right yeah and uh it was it was one of those kind of desert days where there's almost no shadow the sun is just you know there and it's it is the grainiest photograph i have ever i have ever seen <laughs> um i i think i I, I think I refer to those kinds of photographs as whole grain photography because <clears throat> it just looks
0: like a bran muffin. I um, so, so, I mean, is it worth trying? I mean, we, we've both shot it, but for everybody else, I mean, do you think it's worth giving it a shot? Well, you
2: just used an interesting word, Eric. You said worth.
0: And yeah, like, worth.
2: The economic reasons for shooting X-ray film are significant. Yeah. Um, like, I, I just... I keep track of prices, uh, so you know for eight, you know for eight by ten, Arista Edu One Hundred, right? The Ultra One Hundred mm-hmm. is about four dollars a sheet.
0: Oh, right, yeah,
2: right. So it costs about four bucks every time you shoot an eight x ten. I bought. I've been using a film called Ultra Cruise Blue.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I have that.
2: <laughs> and uh, I buy ten. I buy a hundred eight by ten sheets for seventy bucks. Oh, which means $0.70 cents per 8x10, yeah. and if I cut it down, that's, what, $0.17 cents yeah. for a 4x5. Yep. Yeah.
1: yeah. Amazing. Uh, it's,
2: is it worth it? I
1: don't know. <laughs> I think I mean, it if, is.
2: <laughs> if, if you were paying $0.17 cents for any other emulsion, would it be worth it to try things that you wouldn't maybe want to try otherwise? Um, yeah.
1: So do you cut down your own?
2: Yeah, okay. I do. Um, so that's so. There's another thing about X-ray film. Uh, there's there's almost no coatings on it, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so you will scratch a lot of your film before it ever gets into your film holders.
1: True. Um,
2: and by the time it gets out of the develop, you know, the development, uh, sometimes it it looks pretty ragged. So you you kind of learn how to handle it. And I, you know, so I carry cotton gloves, and I use them when I'm cutting and when I'm uh, loading my film holders, and and it it really does make a big difference. Okay. But, um, yeah. I and I just use a straight up paper cutter, like oh, I do okay. it in the dark. And I would encourage anybody who is interested in shooting X-ray to get, you know, get a hundred sheets of eight by ten. Don't just buy. 25 sheets of 4x5 and try it once. Waste some film.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask one more question about x-ray film. And yeah. that was about developing. You know, you do it in road and all. But physically, how do you do it? <laughs> because um, you got so emulsion. I,
2: that's, a, that's a really good question, actually. Most of my 4x5 film I like to develop in a Patterson tank with a Mod 54. Oh, okay. With 8x10, I use the TZS tubes. One, you know, the oh, yeah. eight by 10 tubes. And I, I like that. And I've gotten great results on everything mm-hmm. I develop in those. You just do constant agitation. I have a little water bath. I put them in or I use tray. Okay. So what I've been doing with that, the x-ray film is mostly tray development. One negative at a time. Cause you will scratch the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Try to do four at a time or two at a time. So I've been doing them one at a time in a, in a smooth bottom tray. Okay. And um, I've done it in a, you know, one of the Patterson trays with the little like things in it. Yeah. Scratched it all up. Okay. So get a smooth bottom tray if possible, even an enamel tray, and just, you know, do them one at a time. It's really slow. Um, If you want to use a Patterson, I recommend just using your Patterson as if it were a dip and dunk tank. Don't even put the top on, do it in the dark, pour your Mm. chemistry in, put the film in, but... just set it down into the chemistry and to agitate, you simply just pick it up and kind of up and down to agitate and stick it back in the chemistry.
1: Okay. Uh, for our next episode, our question that we're going to have people calling in for is why not digital?
2: I don't like to yuck anybody's yum. I mean, you know, <laughs> if somebody wants to, you know, I, I have a Nikon D850. I have a Sony a seven. I've shot both of them a lot. Um, that's great. I just find that there is something tactile and something chemical that, um, and there's a process that you have to see through in a different way. For me, when I go out and I take pictures, being able to just like plug my camera into my laptop and, and start uploading them is kind of weird. Um, (laughs) I will frequently drive around for, you know, 10 days. And I will have to wait until I get home, and start processing film. And I usually set up a workflow where I process for a couple of weeks, and then I scan. And ah. I mean, it takes a while. Anything that gets on my, you know, on one of my digital feeds has had several weeks mm. of effort into it. Um, mm. And I, I mean, I think I upload one out of maybe a thousand photos that i take
0: wow Wow. okay
2: i used to be you know with digital i was just sharing things all the time with film i mean i really i think it's probably i share maybe one in a thousand Hmm. frames and most of those are not the best ones and i don't know why that is i just some of them (laughs) i look at them and i think that's got to be in my next zine that's got to be in a book yeah i do that for sure yeah i wouldn't have developed that discipline if i were shooting digital yeah. I wouldn't have learned to hold back because digital is not about holding back. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I would say that's that's my reason to shoot film over digital is to slow yourself down, give yourself more time to think about what the value of your photos is and don't be in a hurry to share everything with the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. I do too. Yeah.
2: But you know, the auto focus on some of these cameras is pretty ridiculous. And if I could ever if I could ever focus an eight by ten with, with <laughs> that fast with that accuracy, um, I would want to have a medal of some sort. Yeah,
1: definitely. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. Leland, it was So nice to speak with you. It was was great great talking
2: to you too. Yeah, this is a good thing. (laughs) Take care. All right, right. you too. All right. right.
0: Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The
1: year 1895 was one that saw the world give up the old and embrace the new. It was the year that Western outlaw John Wesley Harding was killed, but it was also the year of the first motion picture projector, the first radio receiver, and the first automobile race.
0: It was a year that witnessed the death of abolitionist Frederick Douglass, but also the first woman to receive a PhD in America. W.E.B. Du Bois became the first black man to receive a PhD from Harvard.
1: In photography, we were still five years out from the Kodak Brownie. While cameras were becoming somewhat more accessible to the general public, they were still seen as luxury items. 1895
0: also found German physicist Wilhelm Konrad Rankin in his laboratory experimenting with vacuum tubes. He didn't exactly have a specific theory he was chasing. He was merely seeing what adding different variables to the already established science might produce.
1: Come November, Rankin was experimenting with cathode tubes invented by Philip Von Leonard. Like Leonard, Rankin covered the tube with thick cardboard so that no light could be emitted. Despite the light proofing, he noticed that the invisible rays illuminated a piece of paper coated
0: with barium platinocyanide, a salt that illuminates when exposed to various visible rays. Rankin was
1: impressed
0: and figured that this fluorescent effect might be even stronger with a different tube.
1: He was not wrong. As he was setting up this experiment, he hooked up the new tube to a power source, covered the tube in a thick layer of cardboard, and turned off the lights to check to see if everything was truly light-proof. What he noticed, however, was a slight
0: glimmer on a bench across the room. He assumed that a sliver of light was escaping the lightproof case, but whenever he checked it, he found it to be secure. Finally fed up, he checked the bench.
1: And it was there that he discovered that he had left a sheet of barium platinocyanide paper just sitting there. He had never suspected that the effects could travel so far. This opened up a world of possibilities to him. These were, he understood, rays, similar to rays of light, but invisible. The next few weeks became a blur for Rinkin. He ate and slept in his lab working day and night. Mostly he was trying to figure out what these new rays couldn't pass through. Being unsure of what these were, he called them X-rays, X being the mathematical symbol for the unknown. What Rankin did
0: know, however, was that these
1: x-rays would pass through damn near
0: everything. By placing an item between the tube and the sheet, he would essentially see the shadow of the item
1: projected onto the sheet. Here's how Rankin described the results of his research.
0: Paper is very transparent. Behind a bound book of about 1,000 pages, I saw the fluorescent screen light up brightly, the printer's ink offering scarcely a noticeable hindrance. In the same way, the fluorescence appeared behind a double pack of cards, a single card held between the apparatus and the screen being almost unnoticeable to the eye. A single sheet of tin foil is also scarcely perceptible. Thin blocks of wood are also transparent. Sheets of hard rubber, several centimeters thick, still permit rays to pass through them.
1: In fact, the only thing that seemed to block the rays were lead and platinum, both incredibly dense metals. The less dense the item, the less shadow it would cast. In performing these experiments, Rankin noticed that the bones in his own hand could be seen on the screen. If the hand
0: be held between the discharge tube and the screen, the darker shadow of the bones is seen within the slightly dark shadow image of the hand itself.
1: This brings us to the first X-ray photograph. According to biographer Otto Glasser, the event went like this.
0: Rankin conceived another experiment for which one evening he persuaded Mrs. Rankin to be the subject. At his instruction, she placed her hand on a cassette loaded with a photographic plate, upon which he directed the rays of his tube for 15 minutes. On the developed plate, the bones of the hand appeared light within the darker shadow of the surrounding flesh. Two rings on her finger had almost completely stopped the rays and were clearly visible. When he showed the picture to her, she could hardly believe that this bony hand was her own and shuddered at the thought that she was seeing her skeleton. To Mrs. Rankin, as to many others later, this experience gave a vague premonition of
1: death. Legend has tacked on an ending where Mrs. Rankin saw the image of her bony hand and exclaimed, I have seen my death! and fled the lab to never enter again. While it's impossible to know her reaction, it's weirdly similar to a recorded reaction
0: of a newspaper editor. He had a radiograph taken of his head, but he absolutely refused to show the picture to anybody but scientists. A write-up detailed that he has not closed an eye since he saw his own death head.
1: And Rankin's findings took off like wildfire. Rankin made his discovery in November of 1895. He published his findings in January, and even had a sort of gallery show on January 4th at the 50th anniversary of the Berlin Physical Society. Along with his wife's hand, Rankin photographed a
0: number of other things, including metal weights he placed inside a closed wooden box. The image shows a dark shadow of the weights and only the faintest impression of the box itself. That same month, one of his peers
1: reveled in the findings. I could not help thinking that I was reading a fairy tale. Wrote O. Lummer, a physicist from Berlin. There it was printed in black and white, that one could
0: photograph metal weights in a closed box, and that one could print the bones of a living hand upon the photographic plate, as if by magic. Yet only the actual photograph proved to everyone that this was a fact.
1: Rankin took various other photos, but the one of his wife's hand captured everyone's imagination. Though the x-ray photos of weights in a closed box were interesting, we could see these weights with our own eyes, by simply opening the box. Living bones, however, were something always hidden. The most curious picture is that of a human hand, wrote R. Niehaus of the Warburgs Institute. The vacuum tubes used by Rankin were widely available to the science community. With light bulb factories cranking them out, soon every lab was performing similar experiments. Most of these published experiments were repeats of the human hand
0: photograph, Unlike so-called spirit photography, this was easily replicated and provable. Still, it seemed to capture the imagination every bit as much as a charlatan's practicing their trick photography.
1: What seemed to be the selling point wasn't just the images of the bones, but that the film or plate holder didn't even have to be open to receive the image. I think that's a really important
0: point. And it's one that, when you remember what x-rays are, just makes sense. But if you, if you imagine a film holder with a sheet of film in it or a plate in it so it's basically a very thin box with a thin piece of film in it or even a camera i guess with with film in it you don't have to open the shutter there doesn't even have to be a camera there you'd have to focus the beams place the hand over the film holder and the impression the outline of the hand will appear on the film even through the film holder and yes. including in this case the bones
1: yeah i've broken both of my wrists and i've had several times i've been x-rayed several times (laughs) okay
0: you and and yours were long enough ago that it was on film right
1: yes yeah yeah i had some film and then of course i've done like the you know mris and things like that but those were digital those are like several pictures like basically slicing your head like one way up and down and then sideways and the other way
0: it's pretty cool i'll go have it done now (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay. By the end of January, less than a month after Rankin went public with his findings, other physicists were publishing their x-ray photos in the medical journal The Lancet and even in the London Standard. By the end of the month, such photographs were being taken in France and in America. American physicist A.E. Dolber of Tufts College wrote in the journal Electrical World...
0: It must seem like a ghostly experiment to photograph the skeleton of a living person as though it was dissected out and articulated with wire, but the same process has its threatening aspect. If one can photograph through wood and black walls, and in the dark too, then privacy is impossible, for it will be light everywhere but to one's eyes.
1: This wave soon crested outside of the scientific community, entering the public sphere before spring. There were poems and cartoons written and drawn about the dangers of x-ray photography, though these dangers weren't what we know of them now. One such poem read, Oh, Rankin,
0: then the news is true and not a trick of idle rumor that bids us each beware of you and of your grim and graveyard humor. We do not want, like Dr. Swift, to take our flesh off and pose in, our bones or show each little rift and joint for you to poke your nose in.
1: While the scientists generally understood how the x-ray photographs could be taken, the public did not. They seemed to feel that the photos were produced with a special camera or film that could render anyone naked to the bone. Some saw the end of privacy and the need to wear suits and dresses of lead,
0: lest their late Victorian prudishness be overtaken by science.
1: That February, a bill was introduced into the New York legislature prohibiting the use of x-rays in opera glasses in theaters.
0: This naturally gave birth to a cottage industry of x-ray Proof underclothing.
1: And all of this happened by the month of April. The medical community jumped on this. The first use of x rays in medical settings was on January 11th of the same year, not even two weeks after Rankin published his findings. It was used by a doctor in Birmingham, England, to radiograph a needle stuck in a patient's hand. A month later, It was being used in surgery. And even before the press went wild with it, some scientists who studied
0: x-rays and x-ray photography were complaining about hair loss and radiation burns. Even Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla experimented with it and were themselves burned.
1: Over the ensuing years, the x-ray has become what we know it as today. Honestly, it didn't have to go far. Along the way, the tubes changed, as did the film, but the idea was the same. Rankin and his peers
0: experimented using normal photographic plates, the same used to capture families in photo studios. For quite a while now, however, we've had dedicated x-ray film. But what makes x-ray film x-ray film? What makes it different from other black and white film?
1: Well, for starters, most x-ray film has emulsion on both sides. This isn't so the radiologist doesn't have to worry about how they load the film. This is to allow less radiation to be used. X-rays penetrate the film holder, expose one side and then the other, side of the film. With both sides exposed at once, it takes roughly half the radiation to expose the film. Broadly,
0: there are two types of x-ray film. Green sensitive and blue sensitive. In radiology, the color sensitivity has to do with the screen that's being used. Have you got yourself a calcium tungstate phosphor screen, the kind that's used in general radiology? Well, since that emits a blue light, you'll need a blue sensitive film. But if you've got a gadolinium oxysulfide phosphor screen, which emits a green light, you'll need the green sensitive film.
1: The green sensitive film is usually twice the speed of the blue film, which means that it will use half the amount of radiation. Because the emulsions are only blue or green sensitive, they are known as
0: orthochromatic. Most regular black and white film is panchromatic. It's sensitive to all colors and must be loaded and developed in absolute darkness. Orthofilm, however, is not sensitive to red, and so it can be developed and used and all of that under a red light.
1: The earliest photoemulsions were orthochromatic. Panchromatic emulsions didn't come out until the early 1900s, so orthofilm, like x-ray film, is more like the emulsions of the 1800s than anything produced today. To develop x-ray film, radiology departments
0: and dentists use either a mild developer or a monobath. Because they're not usually amateur photographers, the chemical process is kept really simple. For instance, some processing kits label their developer, their stop bath, and their fixer simply as developer one, developer two, and developer three, even though two of the three of those aren't developers. In all cases, the film was developed under a red safety light. In the case of dentistry, the small tanks were enclosed in a box with armholes and a red lens over it. It's a really ingenious little contraption. And if it were just a tiny bit bigger, this would be perfect for developing 4x5s. <laughs> I won <want> one. <laughs>
1: Now, of course, most medical facilities have gone digital. Even most dentists have made the switch. Digital is far cheaper than analog. There's no more chemicals and no more film. And while x-ray film exposure became almost instantaneous, the processing time was anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes. For digital, the image appears on screen without a weight. Except my dentist, he still uses old school. They come in these tiny little blue packs, and they put them in your mouth, and they take the pictures, and then he takes them into the other room and brings them back, and they're adorable. They are.
0: <laughs> so, but, but, more importantly... Digital radiography requires only a fraction of the radiation needed for film. In some cases, it uses 90% less radiation, and this is quite a bit safer for the technicians running the equipment all day.
1: Coming up on our next episode of Dev Party, we'll be developing some x-ray film that we shot in regular 4x5 cameras. Just because it's made for radiation, doesn't mean it still can't be exposed with regular old light.
0: If you'd like to support our podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash all through a lens. We've got bonus episodes, full length interviews, and a growing number of other things. For instance, we'll have the full interview with Leland Buck up already. Want to hear it? Well, head on over to patreon.com slash all through a lens. And one of the things that we do for all of our new supporters since the last episode is we do little shout outs for them. And so who have we got this week Vanya? jason
1: conklin Lori brooks jack johnson suzanne lopez tony Skokovic, ben webster cliff baldwin and the reverend
0: duane thank you all so much so much for uh supporting us we really really appreciate it i don't know if we can express to you how much we appreciate it without much wailing and gnashing of teeth
1: We also like to feature a patron on every episode, and today we have someone that we would like to... Feature? Feature. (laughs) Okay. James Huffstutler. He is at
0: All in Grain on Instagram, and he's, he's definitely worth a follow on Instagram. But um, with a little bit of digging, uh, which is just clicking on a link on his Instagram bio, (laughs) we found his portfolio at his uh, his website, jameshuffstetler.com. And the photos in his portfolio are, well, what do you think, Vanya?
1: Well, they're obviously much bigger than on Instagram. So you can really see like the detail uh, he's yeah. shooting with a Yashica mat when 24 G, which yes. I love, love that I actually sent you that too. camera to a friend. So maybe one of these days I'll get it back. But meh, yeah. it, it does make me excited. I love square format and he does a magnificent job.
0: Yes, his color. Um, you know, I've. I've said this a billion times. I'm kind of on the outs with color right now. But my God, his color makes me want to shoot color like this. Like one <laughs> of the alley. It's just, ah, the tones and the, the, the flavors or whatever you call color. Wonderful. Just delicious. so delicious. Yes. Delicious. Yes. yes. So please give him, give him a follow. He's uh, just a great guy. Really great all-around guy.
1: Yeah. Thank you, James.
0: Yes. Thank you. Winding up the show, let's finally answer our trivia question. Vanya, remind us what the trivia question was again?
1: Images produced by x-rays are called radiographs, but what name were they known upon the discovery and invention? The answer is right here
0: before me in this little envelope. But first, let me extricate it from its paper prison. Okay, I see. There There are actually, there are two answers. Uh, Many people called early x-ray photos shadowgrams. We really, really like this name and wish it had stuck around. Radiograph is boring. Others, however, paying homage to William Rankin, called them Rankinograms or Rankinographs. Both of them horrible
1: names. So please call them shadowgrams. If you got this one right, congratulations. You are deserving of exactly one pat on the back, which you will have to administer yourself. It's not much, but it's better than a slap on the b- <laughs> slap on the belly with a wet trout. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs>
0: oh, okay. And oh, that is about all of the spooky podcast we've got for you spooky today
1: oh no there seems to be a bit of a dry spell on the zine front these days so if you've got a zine you'd like to send us contact us for our address if you want to trade a zine for zine get in touch we absolutely love trading i know that you're kind of sold out of all of your zines right now yeah Yeah. i should probably make something and i've got actually quite a number of zines
0: left over so i'm more than willing to trade so get in touch with us we'd love to see your zine and we'd love for you to have well i'd love for you to have mine and so vanya could you remind us about the answering machine question for next week please
1: yes why not digital
0: good question It's not quite the same as (laughs) why
1: film, because you can shoot
0: film and digital together. So this is simply, why not digital? Why aren't you shooting digital? Maybe you are. So if you are, this question isn't for you. But if you aren't shooting digital, tell us, why aren't you?
1: Yeah, sure. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at Gmail. And we're Lens on Twitter. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at Conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And
0: speaking of Instagram, make sure you hashtag your stuff, hashtag allthroughalenspodcast to be featured.
1: We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through a Lens.
0: And this week's Spotify playlist is spoopy, so make sure to check it out. Ooh. You can also find... Ooh... You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, whatever the hell that is, and wherever else you can find your podcasts.
1: Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com.
0: Thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you so much, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.
1: Uh, hey, Vanya. Yes?
0: Do you uh, want to go out and
1: spooky shoot? <laughs> Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. Yes, (laughs) (coughs) this is where you show me the handkerchief with blood in it. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. You got to have a little handkerchief blood action going on, right? Any old movie, if anybody's coughing, they got to have a handkerchief and there's got to be blood in it. I give you that look where like, you know, I'm dying and you just laugh inside. Like, they don't have to say it. They just got to be like, oh no. But then they also don't want to tell anybody. So they got to like secretly like put it away. And it's...
0: So in this quiet. scenario, you would be the only one who knows I'm dying? Yes. Okay. Fair
1: enough. <sighs>